I think, like, you know how trusted NPR is by people that listen to NPI and talk cardboard, right? If you I say think, so. I think you should make a public service announcement about something we've learned about um, silica gel this week. Well, I've only learned it from uh, Poncho Rebound at mm-hmm. Poncho Rebound on Twitter.com, uh, famous Twitter user, <laughs> uh, that that apparently silica gel is perfectly edible and, and that's fine. I've got another perfect public service announcement. Uh-huh. We have been nominated for the Board Game Geek Geek Awards. I, I think one of these Best things podcast. is more important than the other. The, like uh, you're going to say the silica gel, aren't yes. you? Yes. No, 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 no. Of course we, I am. Look, I, I was classy last time. I'm going to stop being classy altogether. Look, we could win this thing. Please vote for us. You've only got two days left to do so, right? It's until the end of the week. If you're listening to this at the day of publication or the day after or the day after, go open BGG Geek Awards right now on your web browser. Type those words in. And then you can vote for like games or whatever. Who cares about those? Go to best podcast, select talk, talk, talk cardboard, and oh, any you, you ruined that now. And didn't any you? other <laughs> board game podcast that you like, you can assign them how much, which one you like more or less. But but consider voting for us. Wouldn't it be nice if we finally won? We've been trying to win for forever now, so it's our time, is what I'm saying. If people want more important public service announcements, then vote for us, right? Yeah. Because that's what you get from us. It is. Um, and thank you to anyone that has already voted. Right? Thank you so much for putting us in, in, in the 10 that have been nominated. That's an incredible privilege. I, I feel very blessed. Uh, and uh, excited to see what happens next. Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with your no pun, no fun pair, Elaine and Efka. That was really hard to say. You tried three times and two of those won't be heard. (laughs) No, thank goodness for that. On today's show, we'll be talking about Horseless Carriage, Ginkopolis and Rolling Heights, plus an interview with Arthur C. Clarke, award-winning sci-fi author Adrian Tchaikovsky. But first, some of what you have been writing about the last podcast. So we were told on Twitter that uh, in fact, we were pronouncing we sinned us folk wrong because we were saying... V sindas Volk because it's spelt with a V and and why would German, you not pronounce our it German with a v? isn't great so yeah. uh, we didn't but yeah I did learn German for like a year so I should I should really know this but it was a long time ago Lithuanian is a notoriously difficult language but mm-hmm. but having been born with this language I'm continuously flabbergasted by all the other ones that have letters that don't sound like like they are you know we if we have a v it's a v that's it that's the that's the sound you see and that's the sound you make when you read it there's no like conjoining of multiple letters to make a new sound or whatever it's just like that's what's written that's what you pronounce that's it right it's it quite easy to um pronounce then yes like with the spelling and the pronunciation yes it is incredibly easy the difficult part is the stresses so where we put stresses is weird, and we don't denote that, obviously, mm-hmm. in, in written form. So you have to learn on some really arcane grammar rules about how to stress things properly. And you don't, most of the time, you don't even know yourself. And 
you know, Lord forbid you have a dialect, right? <laughs> then you just like stuff because you'll be stressing things incorrectly all the time. And then you'll go to like Lithuanian lessons in school and they'll be like, <laughs> no, that way you learn to pronounce that. That's incorrect um, in terms of stresses. But uh, otherwise, very easy. Do you easy. have words that change the meaning depending on how you pronounce them, but spelt the same? I think there are a few, yeah, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. I can't think of an example. In Lithuanian? Yes. Mm. I can think of a few in English. Yeah. Like bees. Bees? Yeah. <laughs> Why bees? Well, because they could be bees, you know, the or, things that... Or, yeah, or, or you know, the, the, the essence of you, you know. Well, that's not spelled... What? No, that's not even a thing. No? No, no. Well, as in to be. Right, but you don't say bees. I bees. Well, I'm, I don't you say know. I, I. Okay, you say bee for the thing that buzzes. They're not spelled you, the same. All right. Okay. Wow. But they're pronounced the same. Oh, I wanted to say uh, this email. You're just going to ignore my bee point, aren't I, you? I am going to because that's not what I meant. I meant a word that is spelt the same, but you pronounce it differently depending on meaning of the word. Like duck. No, that's pronounced the same, whether you're talking about the animal or whether someone is chucking something at you and you need to dip your head down. Elena, I don't know what you want from me, honestly. <laughs> duck. All right, duck. Hey, up. Um, anyway, right. So, uh, yeah, I want to talk about this email that we've had from Andrew uh, on the subject. You know, we were talking in a previous podcast about war games and, and why they're always war themed right? Yeah. like sorry with war miniatures not war games but with with miniatures right? Yeah, miniature yeah, yeah. war games so andrew says uh on one of the recent uh, episodes when talking about tabletop war gaming you talked about sheep herding and i came across it actually existing <laughs> so uh they, they've also shared a, a, a couple of links to articles from wargamer.com uh, about pacifist alternatives to war gaming uh, including one where you are herding sheep so it actually exists. The funny thing is, I had a look at the articles and one of them about herding sheep was published like a couple of days after we recorded the podcast. That's but incredible. But the podcast hadn't been released yet because we did it early because I yeah, went yeah, yeah. to see my parents. So that that's a strange coincidence. That's uh, Oh, how you was know. your holiday, by the way? Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. Bessie had a nice time. That's code for I did not. No, have I, a nice I had time. a lovely. No, we both had a lovely time. I just thought the listeners may want to know how Bessie had her holiday. Um, we had uh, fish and chips uh, because that's what you do when you're English and you go on holiday um, <laughs> to England. <laughs> and we went to the forest, and you know, we yeah, she had a lovely time. I had a lovely time. So, thank you for asking, Afka. You're welcome. There was also quite a lot of discussion about Carnegie, um, but less about the game itself and more about the person. Oi. And I just want to read a little bit from um, a Board Game Geek thread that Lizard King uh, gave a link to in our Discord, uh, which is from the designer Xavier Georges. Uh, Xavier says on the Board Game Geek thread, Of course, it is not a historical game, nor a simulation game, and even less an educational game. So my presentation of Carnegie remains superficial, probably limited to what Carnegie himself would have liked to have been remembered for. Interesting. Uh, 
It is an assumed choice. I consider board games as a passion made to have fun and to extract oneself from our not always very funny reality for a few moments. I simply tried to make the game as fun as possible, taking a positive stance without trying to make any historical criticism of the excess of capitalism or human greed. <laughs> Phew. So oh, that's, uh, that makes it completely that's fine. That's their right? stance on it. But yeah, it, the discussion uh, that was generated uh, mm. was more about how the designer had accidentally uh, portrayed Carnegie in a correct way by having these like donations, donations and, and, for, and things yeah. like that, right? Uh, so that was quite unexpected, I think, for the designer that, that that's what people latched onto. Yeah, it's it's a funny stance. Like I, I try to choose and see the positive of poverty and exploitation and greed it's uh -huh. a fun time uh -huh. for everyone involved uh -huh. let's make a game about it um sure okay well we have another game from xavier george yes, we uh, do. on the podcast which today. is less controversial yeah i think so yeah <laughs> I, I hope <laughs> i i don't have much to add to that apart from hum you know uh so yeah. let's leave it there i well i, I just want to say that um i when i listened to the podcast back uh, that we did mm. you know i don't know if i came across as a little bit not taking a stance about carnegie i don't and, think you did and i just want to reiterate that i do not like the person i do not support the person uh but i like libraries that's all really i think that was pretty clear mm. you know Good. Um, Good. we also had a comment from latro which i think is in relation to vis and das folk uh, have to say it is interesting and also depressing to see that the experience of I got a ton of history classes when I was a child and now I realise they basically left out a ton of stuff seems to be universal. And Rote says, for me it is, I got a ton of history classes and at least half of them were about the same topic. I think that it's school in a nutshell, isn't mm. it? It's just like you learn so much and it turns out that most of that stuff is completely useless in life and you don't need it but you don't know which as a kid which is the stuff that you will need and which you won't and of course it depends on your future career and whatever but i don't think it's even just about it won't be useful i think some of it is just incorrect yeah. you know because you learn it from an incorrect viewpoint uh but but when you are at school and you're, you're there to learn you're that is the, your purpose of being there right yeah and so you take on all these things that you are told about the british or the rest of the world and and you just learn those things and you don't necessarily question those until you get a bit older and think that's that when you learn more mm. you know you find and out other th you meet other people you find out other things and you go well our history told us this and you meet someone else and they say well in my country our history told us this <laughs> and it's completely different and you wonder why americans are going on a book banning spree right now you know kids are just not gonna learn stuff and they're gonna have to be like 25 or whatever and go what this is brand new information ah. yeah but that's i mean that's the good thing about free information libraries for a start oh i see <laughs> yeah full let's wrap it full circle but it is an interesting topic i think mm. uh, we also had some comments about consumerism because that's what we spoke about in uh, one of our podcasts uh so they Jakob says consumerism 
Uh, the current world of RPGs seems to have fared slightly better, but that's primarily because a PDF is often the sole product you're receiving. So I guess it's not hype-inducing the same way a ton of plastic is. Having said so, I most definitely bought some printed RPGs because they're oh so shiny. I'm not going to pretend like I don't suffer from the same problem. I love I love a good role-playing game book because I love reading and... You know, it's it's the same kind of aspirational situation uh, as with board games, because w- with role playing games, it's a two step process. You go like, well, oh, I can't wait to play that one day. But also you've got that like sort of, you know, extra little step that you can latch onto and go, well, if I don't play it, I'll at least read it, you know, um, mm. so. especially with the bigger ones like um, uh, Vampire the Requiem. Or Vampire the Masquerade. I don't think Vampire the Requiem is a bigger one. It's been dead for forever. No, sorry. I mean the yeah. the bigger physically books, mm. the, the books that are physically bigger that have more information, more story, more just more to them. Yeah, Pathfinder Second Edition comes to yeah, mind. Go. I got yeah. that book and it's like gigantic, like really mahusive. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to read that. All those stat blocks, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just sitting on my shelf. Uh, and we've had another comment from Latro, what, which I want to read out, uh, which is on the subject of buying versus playing games. Um, they say, thing is, one is easier to engage than the other. You can fool yourself easily that you are engaging with the hobby when you really aren't. But beats not knowing what to do on a Saturday afternoon, even for a few minutes, even if it ends with something that should have given you joy now in your shelf of shame. And I think that's a, that's a really good point because, um, like you were saying about the the RPGs as well, like you when you buy something, it's it's engaging with the you feel like you're engaging with the hobby by buying this thing. You feel that you are engaging with it, um, and sometimes the fact that you're not going to get it to the table doesn't spring to your mind at that point. Mm. Well, I, it's a it's a funny thing. I, I was just thinking about this because I've been asked to write uh, for a column in a board gaming magazine and it's a shelf of shame column. Mm-hmm. Right. And I agreed uh, because on, on the one hand, it's like, you know, a column like that encourages people to, uh, you know, get those games out and actually play them. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is nice. But on the other hand, it also encourages <laughs> the idea, the concept of a shelf of shame and normalizes it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, well, we all do it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not like, you know, uh, first of all, shame is 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 a funny thing here because uh, shame is like a negative emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I, I, I think I think the the idea of shame doesn't doesn't help to begin no. with. It's not something we should be shameful about, but it is something we should be conscious about because shame just helps you normalize it. Whereas if you think about it more in terms of assertiveness, mm. uh, then you're you're sort of approaching it differently and you are engaging with the, that idea differently. And it's hard to be assertive, right? Uh, the problem exists because we're not assertive to begin with, right? But it's it's never too late to correct that. I think I think the less we are ashamed of our mistakes and the more we are positively conscious of them, uh, the more we can sort of handle that situation better internally. I agree with you about the the whole term shelf of shame thing. I I don't like the term guilty pleasure. 
yeah, uh, for the same kind of reason that that there is that the, the people say, oh, "This is my guilty pleasure," when it's something you shouldn't be feeling guilty about at all. Like, oh, my guilty pleasure is. I don't know, eating chocolate ice cream in my slippers. What? Why? Why are you? Why is that guilty? Like, be proud, be, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Like, ah. So yeah, to to have a negative emotion attached to something that people should be getting joy out of is odd. I think the thing that always got me about this is that pride is a deadly sin, mm. but shame isn't. Shame completely fine. Totally negative emotion that doesn't help anyone. Mm. I mean, it helps if you're shameful about, like, being a really horrible person, I guess. But I think it's too late by then, you know. Um, and, and, and pride, which is, you know, associated with positivity, is somehow a deadly sin. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's almost as if the list was put together by some people with goals of some yeah, sort. Not a fan of it. We did also have a really nice email from TJ about whale riders. Ooh. Uh, they say, like you, I found the gameplay enjoyable enough, but not so exciting. However, this game holds a place in my heart, if for no other reason than it is a game that my 10-year-old son loves to play. He is not big on board gaming as I am, but has been a good sport about trying things out. Most of the time, within 10 minutes, it is very apparent that he is not interested at all. However, with Whale Riders, he just loved the fact that the gameplay was simple, but gave him options. So it's opened up this hobby a little more for him and i can get him on board with other knizia games like ra yes this is a great email thank <laughs> you for writing in it's great isn't it what what a nice thing and that's that's what we were saying like this is a great game you know for the right type of people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thank you so much for all your comments and if you have anything to say to us email elaine at no pun included.com <laughs> Our first game is Ginkopolis, which comes originally from publisher Pearl Games, designer Xavier Georges, and artist Gael Lenorian. Ginkopolis is a game that's older than we have been reviewing board games. And 2012? Is it 2012? I think it's 2012. Yeah, so that's 11 years. We've only been doing this lark for nine years. So, so it's been around longer than NPI, but. Uh, there's a reason I think it's sort of stayed around and and we're kind of uh, doing our bit towards not always just reviewing the hot new stuff, but also the stuff that's been around for a while and people say it's great. And the thing about Ginkopolis is that it's one of those games that people always tout as a hidden gem. Mm-hmm. And after playing it, finally, for the first time, I've had a copy maybe for like a year I guess it was on my shelf of shame. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. And so so, so we, we got to try it out, finally. And we got to see for ourselves what all the hubbub was about. And turns out there's a good reason it's a hidden gem, right? It, it is indeed a very smart game. It, it's, it's, in terms of design, very, very clever. It does not feel like an 11-year-old game. Yeah, right? It feels snippy it feels you know self-contained and it feels tantalizing in interesting ways uh it it makes you feel smart or stupid depending on you know how well you're doing uh it's engaging but it's also and um this might sound harsh right uh so if if you're a fan of ginkopolis which you might have been for a while because again this game's been out you know for for quite some time might sound harsh 
but it, it's rather dull in some places as well. Uh, and, and so it levels out to me as a pretty enjoyable, good game, right? Uh, whereas the smart parts kind of, you know, leverage the uh, slightly dull parts. But but overall, again, I see why it's a hidden gem, right? It is a gem, but also I just don't think that many people are excited by it. And there's a good reason because some of it is quite dull. What if someone is listening who has not played it? What is it about? Well, that's an excellent leading question, Elaine. Uh, Ginkopolis is effectively a city building game. Uh, the narrative twist of it is that you're you're building a city a- around or somehow based on the ginkgo biloba tree, mm-hmm. and and so in the future as well. So this is like uh, twenty two something, something something. It's a very sort of uh, utopian aesthetic, I guess, a, a utopian setting where it's like everything's great. No, We're gonna it's build- not. I think it's the opposite. Is like, it? Like, man has destroyed everything, and right. all that is left is the ginkgo tree, and a new society has to be built up. Well, around yeah, it. but this new society looks positive and cheerful, and you know, like we're building around sure. the tree. You know, it's it's sure. that kind of idea. You know, reemerging with nature rather than as in opposition to nature, like it is right now. <laughs> And for me, actually, as different and unique as the setting is, it does a disservice against the game, because from this, you might infer a lot of things like, oh, maybe this is a city building game, you know, with uh, where you lay down tiles and, and build up your city. And to an extent, that is true. And, you know, maybe you'll have like city building trappings where like you place one district to a different type of district and you know you'll get bonuses off of that and to a certain extent that is true but also it is an incredibly abstract game and it comes back to our uh, point of critique for that time you killed me where you have what is a pretty abstract feeling system that is dressed up with a very elaborate setting Mm. And that sort of elaborateness of the setting begins to detract from the game rather than add to it. So just to describe Ginkopolis to anyone would be like, oh, yeah, you're building a city and it's like in the future and you're laying down tiles might give a lot of expectations that the game simply does not deliver on. However, what I would compare it a lot more, I think it, it like as a closer point of relation is Reiner Knizia's Tigris and Euphrates, the very popular Reiner Knizia classic tile-laying game, where, again, in that one, you are sort of building cities, right? And you are laying down tiles, and where you place things matters, right? But it feels very abstract, and it feels very mechanical, and it is mostly a game about seeing the smart move Mm -hmm. from the intersection of the cards and the tiles that you lay in place and whatever, right? I I never saw those smart moves. I lost the game every time we played it and not just lost it. I lost it fairly significantly. You saw those those places that were good to build. You saw the interactions between the tiles and how to overbuild well and how to expand the city well. And for whatever reason, that just didn't click in my head yeah so with that in mind let me briefly go over the rules and and maybe it'll make more sense but i don't think i can do this game justice by trying to describe it just from the mechanism so in essence uh what each player does is they have this little, like little screen right where they hide their own little things 
behind the screen, you have these wooden octagons, which are just called resources, because they are resources. You also have tiles that you'll place on the city, which starts in a 3x3 grid of tiles already. And you'll also have cards in your hand. Now, the clever thing about this game is that you always have four cards. uh, And each card always refers to a tile that is placed already on the city. When your turn starts, you will play one of these cards. However, then the other three cards in your hand will be passed to your player. And uh, to the The other... other Yeah, to the opponent, sorry. Uh, And that's already one of the very clever things in the game because it's constantly making you think about, like, hey, if I play this, you know, okay, I get to keep it, but then I have to pass the rest of the cards. Uh, And it's not really like a draft, but a little bit, uh, because then each player draws one card from the deck to refill back to four. Uh, and, And here is where the vagaries start happening. So... Uh, When you play the card, you play it simultaneously, and based on whether you play the card with a tile uh, or without a tile, it'll do different things. If you play it without a tile, it's normally going to let you collect some resources, like more tiles, more resources, more victory points. Uh, But if you play it with the tile, it means that you're building this tile into the city. But then what kind of card you play it with also depends... Uh, how you're going to build it. So there are cards that'll let you expand the city so it just goes off, you know, becomes bigger, a bigger grid. Or you can build on top of other tiles, overlaying tiles. And because at the end of the game, there's three different colors. There's red, uh, blue, and yellow tiles. Uh, And at the end of the game, you're looking for majorities and districts, but it also depends on whether your opponent has pips in those districts or not, uh, and they all have to be of the same color to count as a district. And so you're sort of manipulating this field of tiles into, into various changing positions and states and uh, sort of allegiances where the map looks like one thing at the start of the game, but you know it'll completely rearrange itself by the end, and it all depends on what cards you pass to your opponent because those cards determine what uh, what tiles you can build and where you can build them, and then the tiles that you build, um, you know, will bring out new cards into the deck, and they'll have different scoring abilities or different abilities. Uh, that will give you bonuses based on what action you take, and sort of the game really balloons and grows out of everything you and your opponents do together. It's like a, I guess, a holistic system. And in that way, I will concede that the game evokes its theme a little bit because it's like, you know, we're trying to build a city that's one together and holistic with nature, and there is a very holistic existence of this game on the table if that makes sense someone's going to be better at doing that than someone else yes and they're gonna win (laughs) so when we when we played this right after the first game Mm. you really bounced off very hard off of it i think i just didn't work out quite what the game's puzzle was uh Mm. and i thought i didn't I, i didn't realize that that's why i didn't like it i just found it a little bit dull but I I think that was absolutely my fault I don't think it was the game's fault uh, because I didn't realize it was only on our second play that I realized quite how significantly the interactions affected the game so so for example like you have these four cards in your hand and you're not only looking at them to see what you want to build or what you want to, uh, exp- how, you, how you want to expand the city, but also what you're going to be passing to the other player. 
And I don't think I gave that enough credit because when I passed you cards, um, there were things that I thought oh, I should have done this because now you're doing that. Because I was looking at it like, well, I don't want to overbuild on my own tile because that that will only get me one more pip in that area, one more resource in that area. Um, so why would I want to do that? But then you did that and you overbuilt mine. So that took off like two resources of mine and put on three of yours. So mm. it was a sort of net uh, positive for you of like five. Or, do you know what I mean? Do you understand yeah, what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. it took uh, two of mine off, put three of yours on. So it was a, a more significant difference than I had accounted for. Uh, and and that part of the puzzle I didn't understand in the first game. And, and that's why I didn't gel with it very well. The second time we played, I discovered those those bits more. And, and I think I was more aggressive, even though I still lost terribly. But I think I was more aggressive in that second game. Okay, what don't I want to pass to you? Not only what do I want to do myself, what do I, what do I not want you to have? Um, and if I pass you this, you could do this. And will you do this? And I was thinking a lot more about the things that you were going to do as well as what I was going to do. There really is that sort of fine sense of what is actually rewarding for me to do. So uh, in terms of like how many pips you have in an area. So uh, and, and the way that works is basically you look at each group of colors on the board. So let's say we're looking just at blue tiles that are orthogonally adjacent to one another. As long as there are two of them mm -hmm. that are orthogonally adjacent to one another that have pips on them, you know, that's an area. And whoever has the most points in that area, more, most pips, will effectively score like one victory point at the end of the game per each pip they have there. However, there's some really fun wrinkles. So for example, if you are the only person with pips in that area, you'll score double points. Whereas if you're not, and you still have more than the other player, then you'll score points for every pip in that area. Whereas the second player will score pips only for their own pips right. in that area. So it creates these weird incentives where like, if someone has like an area with, uh, you know, like four tiles and seven pips on there, uh, you, you might want to leave that alone right because like well if i go in there i'm just adding towards their own points yeah if you put one pip in that area you would only score one but then they would score one more as well <laughs> yeah but if you don't do that they score 14 points right. because they score double right. right so like actually by making them score a point i'm making them score six less points <laughs> right and and so there are like there's a lot of hidden nuance in the game and i think that's one of the reasons why people are gonna really latch onto this as the hidden gem mm. you know like oh yeah it's, it's very clever it is clever it does make you feel clever because it has a lot of like these hidden maneuvers that you can pull off and and it's very slight and subtle right but i think in its slightness and subtleness it is i'd say it's not a game that is ever as good as tigris and euphrates i i know they're not you know necessarily similar games but i have i think they have a similar tone and vibe where you uh, where they're very abstract you're placing tiles and a lot of different things can happen based 
on something you haven't foreseen, but something you have done. You know, you'll place a tile and then four rounds later, when the situation has evolved completely differently, you'll see the consequences of your moves and you'll be like, oh, <laughs> right? Like, it, it, it does give you that sensation. But I, I think uh, the benefit of something like Tigers and Euphrates is, is that it's a lot more immediate, right? And it's a lot more, like, present. Whereas... Ginkopolis is a lot more obfuscated and, and some and sometimes a little bit more obtuse. It's very hard to predict mm-hmm. in a way that feels satisfying. It's more like I'm just most of the time reacting to what's going on. And whilst I feel like I have strategies, and they mostly come from cards, because these cards that whenever you build a tile on top of another tile, the card that you use to build the tile over... Uh, will go into your scoring area and then it'll either trigger bonuses each time you take the corresponding action or give you victory points at the end of the game. And I think that sort of gives you like the sort of drive that says, oh, this is your game plan, right? Mm. Which feels nice, but actually for me, it it detracts from the puzzle more because I prefer something pure like Tiger and Euphrates that just says, this is the puzzle, do it. You know, there's no like these, you know, variable point collection mm-hmm. things at the end of the game it's just it's just this just do it yeah I, I i agree with you like you can see what cards the other player has put down as end of game scoring and you can see what's out uh in the communal area like on the board mm. so you can kind of you know do the maths a little bit and see what they might be scoring for so it's not completely like hidden information but I don't th- I don't necessarily think that's a fun way to play the game where you're doing the maths all the time. You will your mind will over your brain will overload. Yes. Right? Yeah. There's just no way anyone can contain all of that. And there is a certain amount of randomness because you are drawing cards, you are drawing tiles and there is a balance as well between um how many tiles you want to draw. Mm. um and because you don't want to overload yourself with with tiles because then that detracts from getting other things like the resources or or victory points or it could do um and and you would end up with this plethora of of tiles but at the same time you want a choice of what tiles you have because you don't know what cards you're going to get yeah the more the more tiles you have the more options in terms of how you manipulate the board so there's some decisions there and i think that is interesting Mm. And overall, after that second game, uh, I did start to enjoy this game. And I can see why a lot of people do like it. And certainly, if I had played this game 11 years ago, my mind would have exploded, I think. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a very clever design. I think I respect it more than I like it. Uh, but I can totally see why people like it. Still to come, we have Horseless Carriage and an interview with Children of Time author Adrian Tchaikovsky. But first, let's talk about a game that a few years ago would have sounded like a joke. Rolling Heights comes from publisher Alderac Entertainment Group by designer John D. Clare and artists Stephanie Gustafson and Quant Chai Moria. Elaine. Yeah, that's my name. I do declare <laughs> that this is my favourite John D. Clare game. <laughs> nice. Uh, I, I'm sure they've had that joke no at some point do you not think that that was very clever answers on a postcard i think <sighs> okay well rolling heights is my favorite john declare game uh i had such a thrilling time <laughs> just absolutely 
stumped by how much fun I had with a concept that is <sighs> rolling meeples. <laughs> I didn't understand when you said to me, this is a rolling meeples game. I was like, I have never heard of this genre of game in my life. What does that mean? Well, well, it turns out it's not the first one even. There was already uh, a rolling meeple game before Rolling Heights. This is the second one. In by the John jo- Declare? No, oh. no, no, not by John Declare. Okay. Uh, this is the second one in the rolling meeples genre. But this is a game where you take a handful of meeples... And then you roll them. <laughs> Drop them into a little box. Yeah. And then, depending on how they land, you will either get things or not. So, uh, the premise of Rolling Heights is that you are building a city. So, think suburbia, think Machikora, right? You are landing somewhere close in terms of what you can expect from it. You will place tiles. They'll represent different districts in the city, like industrial or small businesses or parks or residential, right? And based on what is next to what, you'll get points and bonuses and abilities and all that kind of jazz. But more importantly, they'll get you more meeples to roll. And there's many different kinds of meeples. Um, So each turn at the beginning of a round, you will scoop up 10 meeples, up to 10, right? (laughs) Out of all the meeples you have, you'll start only with four. But as you build things, you'll get more. And Uh, different types. Yeah, right? Exciting. (laughs) And I'm not... (laughs) I sound sarcastic. It's, but you've it's, been in Britain too long. You just sound sarcastic whenever you try and be This is really good. Or... I really like <laughs> it, right? And so, yeah, you'll, you'll assemble your pool of meeples, put them all in, in, in your hands, shake them and drop them into a box lid. Uh, and then uh, these, these are basically like your workers and based on how they land, they're going to work for you, right? Uh, so if they land flat down you know like on the back right they are exhausted meeples and they're not going to be working right if they land on the side they are working steady or as we like to call them in our house hardly hardly (laughs) work and if they land on their feet and standing up properly then they are working hard I like the idea that if, you know, if I, when I was at work at the library, if I was laying on, on the ground, yeah, uh, you know, or like in a weird position with my arm, one arm on the ground and one leg on the ground, yeah. that would have been considered uh, working steadily. <laughs> if I'd have been laying down completely, oh no, that, that Elaine's exhausted, like don't, don't yeah. get her for this work now, she's exhausted. But if I, you know, was on my, doing a handstand, doing a cartwheel, right, that, that would have been fine. I mean, that's how we're recording this podcast, right, lying on the side. <laughs> No, I'm Working standing on my steady. head, actually. Are you standing yeah, on your head? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which, which actually isn't a thing. Do you know the funny thing about this game? So, uh, You asked th- me what happens if it lands on the I head. I did ask that. <laughs> and so I no, said it's that It's physically impossible. But, but talking of that, the, what the question that we kept having was, how did they, when they play tested this, how did they work out what the ratio of how many times a meeple would land on its back or how many times it would land on its feet or how many times it would land on its side? What, how did they work out that ratio? They must have done the maths somehow. <laughs> so, there must be tables. John D. Clare must have tables of like fig- figuring out how these meeples land. <laughs> 
let's maybe not overthink that, <laughs> or at least not tell and then, people. And then we looked. Then we looked at the boxes that you roll them in because it's a box lid and a box bottom. And you said, "Well, one of these has to be slightly bigger because it's the <laughs> lid, so it has to go on the top." I wonder how much that affects, like, because you have a bigger space to roll them in. I wonder how much that affects how these roll. <laughs> I'm crying. Oh no! That that was what we focused on in (laughs) in this game. Or you could get a pink meeple if someone is exhausted. If one of your meeples is exhausted, you might get a pink meeple. Who I don't know what the the uh, actual job title in the game is, but they it's either a very negative thing or a very positive thing. They hoof up one of your other meeples and get them back on their feet potentially you get to re-roll them and I thought that was quite funny because like either this person is such a dragon that they're going right no you exhausted meeple you try again you try and work or they go oh no it's fine like you've had your rest now come on let's let's try again yeah and very encouraging I think that's left for your imagination what is wrong with us so Despite the entirely sim- silly premise of rolling heights, I have to say that a lot of work has gone into making it feel like really smart as a yes. design. Um, so, yeah, you, you do scoop up some meeples and you roll them. But then what happens after that is is, is quite a little nice push your luck uh, mechanism that's happening. So, first of all, there's no bad feels, right? Because um, let's say you're rolling 10 meeples, right? And on your first roll, you roll and only three of them are, you know, working in any kind of fashion, steady or hard, you know, that's okay. You pick up the rest of the meeples free of charge, no consequences, and you roll them again and you'll roll them until at least half of your meeples uh, end up working in one fashion or another. So if after these free re-rolls, at least five are either standing up or laying on the side, you know, that's it. So you'll get half of your meeples working, basically. No problem, right? But then after that, so you'll set those working meeples aside, right? And you'll still have some lying down meeples, right? In this hypothetical scenario. After that, you get to push your luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you, you can roll your meeples again. And if at least one of them lands, you know, on the side or standing up, uh, that's fine. You get to put them. They work. No consequences. But if all of them are laying flat, you have caused the strike. <laughs> the people you're have said them work too hard. Yeah, the people have said enough. And then, out of all the meeples that you rolled that were already standing, you have to lose half of them, and they go lying down. So there is a penalty. But then, even if you do that, you get either like you get this token that's either a victory point or a resource of your mm. choice which are actually really really handy and so you end up getting something anyway right so a lot of the time in this game you are incentivized to do the one thing that is incredibly good which is to roll meeples right like the design it seems entirely focused on like just roll those meeples right and i i don't know what it is about rolling meeples that is 
so preposterously fun because they're such a stupid shape. They're not made to be rolled, right? But like you're rolling them and there's a game out of that. But then after that, okay, so... That's, you, that's the thing though. Is, right? isn't, sorry, I was just going to say that's the thing. It's not... Although it's based, based on this premise of rolling meeples, that's not the entire game. It's not a stupid game. It's a very yeah. smart game. Um, and there's a lot of different things to do in this game, which I'm sure you you were about to talk about. Well, yeah, I, I will. So, okay, so uh, some of your meeples will just get you resources. And so, like, for example, there's, there's four resources in, in the game. There is wood and concrete, which you start with two brown and two grey meeples. So each... So a brown, steady working meeple will get you one wood. A brown, hard working meeple will get you two wood. And then the gray one, again, will give you one concrete if it's steady and two concrete if it's working hard, right? So you get those meeples at the start. Uh, and then there's also another two meeples that give you different kinds of resources. There's glass and then there's iron, I think, yeah. which is a blue meeple, right? And And the cool thing about those is that uh, they're harder to get, so you want those meeples. But at the same time, wood and concrete, meep- you can't get more of those meeples. You start with two, you could lose them because mm-hmm. there are abilities that'll say, oh, trade up your wood meeple for like something else, right? And you're like, oh, I don't know if I should do that because I won't be able to make much more wood in the game because there's, I think, to the best of my knowledge, there's just no way of getting that meeple back right? So there are meeples that just make you resources. But then there's also these like two sliding scales of buildings that each have nine buildings. So there's level one buildings and level two buildings. So at any point in the game, there's like 18 buildings to choose from, right? But they're not buildings, they're building plans. So first, you will have to spend resources to acquire these building plans, right? And then you'll put them somewhere in the city. And then of course, as in any city game, adjacency matters. You know, like, oh, if I put parks next to each other, I'll be able to score off of the abilities on these tiles, or maybe I have some endgame bonuses that relate to those that are public or private or whatever, right? Uh, so that's important. But also, then you've let, placed that building plan. Uh, you still need to put resources on that building plan to actually build that building. And as you spend these resources, you put these blocks that stack on top of one another and the the game becomes vertical, which is also visually really nice. And when you build a building, you get to cap it off with this little like end bit, plastic end bit that's in your player color that says, oh yeah, I've built this. Uh, But then on top of that, when you finish a building is also important because that's when its ability triggers. And if it's by that time surrounded by the right tiles and it scores off of those tiles, you know, that's good. So you don't always want to finish a building, but also you do want to finish a building because sometimes it might score you, but it might also give you a meeple. So that's an extra meeple you can roll, right? There's there's a lot of nuance and cleverness. And a lot of competition, like the board split into six districts and you can you know, you'll score points for having, like, let's say, the tallest building in a certain district at the end of the game. So, like, there's a competition for that immediately. And I'm not going to say it's the the best city-building game out there. I think maybe there are better ones, you know? It, it does have that magic horror vibe in terms of it's a bit unpredictable and a bit potty, you know? Uh, and by potty, I mean there's potholes in it, you know, design potholes, Does that make sense? Did I just invent a word? Doesn't matter. Uh, And it's it's fine, but 
coupled together with this preposterous push your luck meeple rolling really satisfying activity it's just a lot of fun yeah one of the things i found pretty clever was that you are using the same resources to buy the tiles as you are using to put on the tiles Mm -hmm. so if you've done the the maths where you think oh okay i can i can add things to this building and then you suddenly realize that you need or you want to buy a tile as well, and then you don't have the resources to buy the tile as well, and then you're figuring out, well, which ones do I use to to buy the tile and which ones do I put on the building because I'm not going to be able to finish this building and then I'm not going to get the extra meeple, which I then need to... Ah, you know, there's a lot of decisions uh, in this game about... And like, and like you said, you know, you don't always want to finish a building because you think there's your, the push your luck, you know. If I don't finish this building now, can I build something next to it that is going to score it more points? But then you're building something next to it that also needs something else built next to it to score points. So <laughs> it's a never-ending like, well, story. Well, if I don't finish this, then, oh, you know, and, you, and you're ending up... Because you can finish as many buildings as you want uh, on your turn, but you can only buy one tile mm-hmm. per turn. So... If you've got the resources, if you've got the meeples to generate those resources, you can potentially score a lot of points in one turn. And you might have a turn where you kind of feel like you're doing nothing for it. And then another turn where, you know, you've scored a lot. So there's a lot of potholes. There's a lot of ups and downs, I think, uh, throughout this game. That brings out the emotion of it, you know. And I just can't overemphasize that it's it's the act of the joy of rolling meeples that is the fun in this game. It's not that the rest of it is bad, because it isn't. You I know think what it's else pretty is the strong. Fun? Yeah. Trying to stack seven cubes on top of each other and then put a hat on top of that. There are some nice little touches, though. I will, I will say that, for example, you do get two endgame scoring goals, right? And normally a game will say at the start of it like i'll just discard one of them right no you keep you only score one of them but Mm. it's only at the end of the game right yeah i like that lot pick whichever one you like and it feels like generous in that regard i do have a couple of criticisms Mm -hmm. towards the game uh so criticism number one which is very minor but and and more like i don't know how you get around that the fun of the game like i said is rolling meeples right Mm -hmm. and then to make that not stupid, you know, the rest of the design is quite clever, right? But that the rest of it part takes way too long in between when you, you get think? to roll meeples again. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't find that. And maybe, maybe it was just me, but I was like, I wish I was already rolling meeples again. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were just really keen to roll the meeples. Maybe. I said to you that it reminded me a little bit of um, Quarriers because you're, yes. you're, you're looking at that's an old game that no uh-huh. one will care about but uh, you're looking at which meeple because there's different color meeples that do different things you're looking at which meeples you want to try and get uh to do more things in the future so um and like you said you can sometimes swap out a meeple for another one so do you want to lose that one that will get you wood and get something that will make you glass instead is that going to be helpful in the future or or have you got a building that is going to need wood still right and at what point do you try and get these different meeples and the different abilities on them and we never had a purple was it purple or dark pink dark yeah dark pink we we never even had and we we never even got a green meeple which lets you stand up meeples Mm -hmm. you know and say oh hey you're upgraded now Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah so we haven't we haven't like tried out this game fully 
And I think we maybe might make a video about it. Maybe a bumper video somewhere down the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we both really enjoyed this game. Another actual criticism, which is a bad thing to complain about. There's so much stuff in this box. (laughs) There's just a preposterously large number of things, right? There's resources in four different colors, plus a bumper color for when one of the resources runs out, because that's one of the endgame triggers. There's 10 different colored meeples right there's two different stacks of tiles there's this and that and like there's so many pieces and the setup takes forever right and the packing up also takes forever for the experience that it is there's just a lot of put things onto the put things onto the table in different little bowls or groups or piles or whatever you know it, it takes a while to get going Takes up a lot of space on the yeah. table. Yeah, but at the same time, it's a generous box of but things. But you're building a city, Efra. It is going to take up a lot of space and take well, a long time, isn't it, really? Yeah. If you think about it. Fair, I concede. Yes, <laughs> a city doesn't have many things in it. It's a generous box, though. That's my point, really. You know, mm. it's it's nice that the game feels voluptuous, I guess, and complete within its experience. I know it's from a Kickstarter campaign and there was some, like, promos or something like that but it feels pretty complete like what i got in retail i'm very happy about still to come we have horseless carriage but first we have an interview with the winner of the 2022 british science fiction award for best novel adrian tchaikovsky Delighted to welcome to the show Adrian Tchaikovsky. Adrian is an Arthur C. Clarke award-winning science fiction and fantasy author noted for his novels in the Children of Time and the Final Architecture series and many, many others. Adrian, I really like your books. I especially love the recent Children of Memory and City of Last Chances. So thank you very much for being on the show. No, thank you for inviting me on. As much as I'd love to talk about your books, uh, today we're not talking about books. Today we are talking about board games, because it turns out you play board games. So I thought I, I just I have to... I have to have you on, you know, I can't miss this opportunity. Can you tell me a little bit more about what got you into them? Like, what was the board game that really opened up your interest and was like, you know, oh, this is this is different. This is something I could get excited about. Um, So, I mean, when I was a kid, we used to play board games, but there wasn't much of a a range to have. And so we would generally take the components and just make our own game out of them, frankly, because... Otherwise, there's relatively little you can do with Monopoly or Escape from Colditz and things like that. Um, more recently, I, I kind of I was probably a bit of quite late coming to the kind of the the great sort of Euro game revolution and things like that. But I think the game that really hooked me into making board games a regular regular part of my life was uh, Above and Below, which were from uh, Red Raven Games. Yeah, that's the that's the sort of a Euro game with a little bit of story flavor, right? Yeah, well, I mean, qu- I mean, quite a lot of story flavor. So the the idea is, it's it's a it's a village building game. Uh, you recruit villagers, you build your village, but also there is the below, which is um, this sort of dungeon space, and that comes with a book of stories. And you go down and you randomly find out sort of which encounter you're going to have there. So it's a big random element added in, and it adds an enormous flavor. The game is it's part of quite a long range of games that Ryan Lockett has produced, which are all kind of loosely set in the same world. And so you get these um, this continuity from one game to another, which which kind of once you played a few, you start to recognize, oh, I know that I know that sort of that type of um, person or that particular 
material or uh, or that historical reference or whatever. So uh, does setting matter to you in board games? And from uh, just your interest in above and below, can, can I sort of infer that in terms of genre, I mean, do you gravitate towards settings that that are sort of similar in terms of what you write. Yeah, I mean I certainly there are certainly games I play that don't have a that don't have a speculative element. Um I think I need a game that tells a story though. Even if it's quite even if it's quite a dry euro game, <laughs> um a lot of the time you get this emergent story that comes out through play. And that for me is a large part of the the enjoyment of the enjoyment of the game. I think when when a game is very dry and especially, I mean, I know it's a, a tradition in the board games industry where you have a particular mechanic and it will turn up in a game and then later on you'll get another game with a very different setting but the same mechanic, um, which is effectively just a re-release with a new a new coat of paint. And I find that a bit off-putting because I, I, I like the idea that the, the mechanics of the game are really integrated into the setting mm. um, in a way that does produce that kind of emergent story. I think games certainly tend to have that sort of latching on towards deriving. And it's not just in terms of mechanisms. A lot of settings are very iterative. It's like you've seen this before uh, and 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 here it comes again, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, there are a lot of games out there about um, building some sort of business or about kind of, you know, building a, a village up. And it's there are many ways of going about these things, some of which are very um, mechanistic and they they work very nicely as a logic puzzle, but they're not they don't really engage the imagination and other ways because of the the logistics of the game. You find you're very much each time you play, you're you're just building up that narrative of what what precisely is happening in each person's sort of um, in each person's play area. Is there an example of of a game that you can think of that does you know does evoke story really really well? Whether something that you you know keep coming back to or something recent. Um, yeah, there there are um, there are a couple. I mean, um, Root I think is extremely good for that. Um, the mechanics of the two, the, the two, sorry, the mechanics of all the different factions directly give you a kind of a personality um, and a a way that they relate to the world. So that if you are playing, uh, I mean, for example, um, the Eerie Dynasties in Root, it's an asymmetric game. All the factions play very differently. The Eerie Dynasties are they are the former rules of the forest. They are birds. You have, they are a very, very stratified and organized society, and you basically have to program your moves almost like a computer. And so, what you're doing, you're making kind of campaign promises. So, you are telling your people, right, this, this term we are going to build and we're going to fight at least two battles, and we will recruit some people and we will, whatever the other thing is that they do. And if you do not fulfill your promises to your people, there will, there will be, you'll be overthrown and you'll your faction will fall to ruin and you have to then pick a new leader and start again. Which means you get these situations like, well, I've said I'm going to fight in two battles and I don't want to fight in two battles, but if I don't, I get overthrown. Therefore, I'm just going to throw my people into fights they can't win purely to satisfy this sort of battle-hungry populace that I've cultivated. And it's very real-world politics, all arising from these relatively simple mechanics. And I find that, give, that gives a very immersive feel 
to and all, all the factions in Root kind of work like that and you get this a very very immersive feel of you're playing a particular type of game and it's not necessarily the sort of game that everyone else on the board is playing but it meshes with them because of the um the very careful way that the game has been designed can you then on the inverse can you think of something that that a board game did that made you feel the opposite or or sort of to rephrase the question what can board games do to not fall into these pit traps of being quite uh, mechanical and derivative? I mean, I think the the games I'm thinking of that are mechanical and derivative, they are so because, I mean, they're built mechanics first, and then obviously the 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 setting that they've been given has very obviously just turned up at the very last moment. They'll say, right, this is this sort of game. So, for example, I've got a game called Equinox. Mm. The idea with Equinox is there are a whole series of magical creatures and there is some sort of contest they're involved in and you have this kind of knockout auction going down and you want to be the person who was backing the right magical creature at the beginning, which is perfectly fine. And it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a perfectly well-designed game, but you kind of think this, this, this setting doesn't really make a great deal of sense. And then you look back and you think, oh, this used to be a game about the gladiatorial champions who were fighting in an arena. And that kind of made, made made a bit more sense, but also the fact that you have this kind of roving mechanic in search of a a reason to exist feels a bit weird. And the fact that it, it's kind of being imported wholesale from one to another, just, you know, kind of being given a new suit, suit of clothes. Um, to me, and I, I need to stress, you know, to me with my particular what I'm looking for in a game, it makes for a, a somewhat of an unsatisfying experience but i know people who for whom that is absolutely fine they're very much more interested in in the mechanics and in the mathematical problem and in the finding that perfect move that will just sort of cut through all of these all of the different probabilities and aspects of the game and and give you that big sort of wad your points at the end or whatever it is however it is that the game works <laughs> reiner can you say game so he He's very much known for taking the same design and 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 doing it again and again and again mm. and again, and uh, I, I can certainly empathise with that. When like there there is a version somewhere of a game of his that I feel it's always like, oh yeah, you hit that you know with the nail on the head, right? And sometimes it's just like, eh, this doesn't quite work. And and <laughs> I, I can definitely relate to that. You know, you don't just play. Uh, board games. You play all kinds of tabletop games. I've noticed. You know, uh, I've definitely seen on Twitter you with you know Warhammer miniatures, and and I've read on your Wikipedia that you like to play role playing games uh, and LARPing. Does one of these ever take precedence, or is your attention equally split? So, um, tabletop role playing games are definitely my big thing, and had really have been for many many decades now and i've got a couple of campaigns i'm playing in regularly um at the moment and it's kind of been the hobby that i've kept up pretty much um constantly since i was about 13 larping i've not done for a while because it's quite time consuming in the sense of you have to give whole weekends over to it most of the time um board games are i think board games kind of fit for me as as the they're the casual thing i can do with any group of people you can always just sit down and play a board game um with no real kind of run-up whereas with a role-playing game it's much more of an investment of time because you're playing something that's going to exist over several sessions and possibly months and months and months so um and with the warhammer i actually just paint i don't 
play, I don't sort of seriously war game, but the, I find the painting of the figures enormously therapeutic. Yes, me too, actually. <laughs> this is why those paints behind Yes, like, I can see yeah, your, yeah. your paints. Yeah, yeah I, I, this is very nice. I just got this, actually. And and I'm very, very personally pleased. It's like, yes, they're organized now. Would Would you be able to send me a link to where you got that from? Yes, from Etsy, definitely. It was quite cheap Oh, it's well. an Etsy thing? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I will definitely send you a link afterwards. I think it's easy to imagine how... Um, a role-playing game can inform a writer's work. Has a board game ever informed your work in any way? Uh, I mean, weirdly, yes. Not in the same way that role-playing games necessarily have, but I think because they are so much more easy to introduce people to. I mean, the, you know, the conceptual bar to even quite a complicated board game is, is lower than trying to ex- explain to people the idea that you are, you're playing a character in a make-believe world. Um, so they do actually turn up in my books on occasion. So people may recognize the game that the sort of uplifted octopuses are being trained on in Children of Ruin as Carcassonne, for example, because I think Carcassonne has almost like a chess-like quality of being a really rather perfect, just sort of logical logical puzzle game. Um, and although you've got a random element in the tile picking up, I think the actual execution of the game is in has this enormous sort of simple simple elegance that I think you could use. Um, you could you, you you that could become quite a sort of a, just a cultural a cultural staple quite easily. And I mean, the chess turns up a lot. I've used chess in games, uh, various real chess and also fake chess in books. Cage of Souls, I believe, opens with chess, right? With a game of chess. Yes, al- yeah. although although the more you go through, the more you realise they're not really playing chess as we know it. Um, but chess is also, chess is the one that always turns up in, in game, because it's that game in the same. It's always chess and it's always Shakespeare. And those are the cultural markets. So I quite like going beyond that. And in the same way in the second Architects book, Eyes of the Void, there is a game... Um, which, if you strip off the the kind of the planetary trappings that it's got, is kind of above and below. Oh, really? That's fantastic. Yep. <laughs> I, I mean, it's very much my homage because it's one of my favourite games. It's very much my homage to it. The idea that it, it survived one of the things that survived from the destroyed Earth and just been kind of refaced for a, a space a spaceborne population. That's so lovely. I really like that. I, I didn't realise they were playing Carcassonne and shame on me, but <laughs> that is amazing. Uh, I've also uh, noticed that there's a pretty pivotal scene in City of Last Chances that uh, centres around what I'm going to guess is a fictional board game, but now I'm not so sure anymore. <laughs> It that is enti- it's entirely a fictional board game, but it, it's it's something a little like mahjong uh-huh. that they're playing, but with a, a with an added element of kind of hidden tiles when you're building your wall and things like that. So it's it's kind of um, but it's if you if you were watching people play it, it would look quite a lot like mahjong. Uh, can you remind me the name of it? Uh, Chak. Yeah. C H A Q. If say, and this is like completely hypothetically, right? Where someone was to come to you and say, Adrian, we'd really like to make Chak into a real game. Um, <laughs> would that interest you at all? Or do you think it would be opposite? It would undermine the fictional game. I'm, I, I, I would love them to do it. I don't think I would be much of a help. I mean, I do, I do, I'm conscientious enough in writing those scenes. That I think I'm at least talking about the edges of a game that would work logically so i think you could do it from what i've written down but 
I'm kind of very aware that I'm personally not a game designer. And so it would be lovely if people wanted to do that, but I, I, I don't have that kind of that game sort of planned out and ready to go in a in a word file somewhere. So this is this is a bit of a question that's out there, so I'm gonna immediately preface that. And also uh it's uh it's it's a minor spoiler for uh children of memory. So if people who are listening to would not like to have themselves spoiled uh on anything on children of memory uh if you haven't read this book or would like to read it uh you can always skip to the spoiler free timestamp in the show notes and i'm going <laughs> to give it a few seconds so those affected can pause the podcast right now and skip to the timestamp okay uh so in children of memory like the book deals a lot with simulation and simulated experiences mm. and treats that which we often perceive fictional and imagined as something that's more real than we give it credit for. So seeing as board games are sort of also simulations, you know, they're quite crude at that, but they are. Do you think that maybe they're a little bit more real, uh, especially in terms of our experiences than we give them credit for? I mean, I think as they exist, it's that, I mean, that's a bit like, um, weirdly enough, it's a bit like the whole chat GPT stuff in that, Board games create a, from very simple rules, a complex feeling result that it's easy to read reality into. Um, I mean, obviously, what you've got when you break down to it, you have something that is entirely just a cascade of sort of rules and random inputs that and player decisions that's making that. But the reason that I'm able to enjoy reading a narrative into a board game experience is because they they do create that illusion of a wider world and a deeper world very, 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 very readily, just from fairly simple beginnings. Um, I'm put in mind of, a, of a, quite an old book called King Magic, Queen Magic by Ian Watson, which is, uh, it starts off again with chess, and the idea, but in this case it starts off with from the point of view of the chess men and what their world feels like to them, but then they get out and they go through several other game world so you get the idea of what is it like to be someone who lived in monopoly and the answer is kind of horrible and what is <laughs> like, what is it like to be someone who lives in snakes and ladders and the answer is also horrible uh but in different ways um though i think board games are one of the they're really they're one of the simplest but they're one of the best examples of how we can create very real feeling sort of mental word worlds from extremely simple um, simple building blocks, just because the human mind is kind of set up to do that. Has there been like an experience in that regard, a play experience uh, that has come alive more than you expected for you? Uh, do you know what I mean? Like where where you weren't expecting to resonate with a game on on a on a kind of a play level, and in terms of you know spilling yeah. over into reality i mean some some games they have they have a synergy between the setting and the mechanics of the game that is not in any way readily apparent but you just kind of stumble over during the play i mean there's a game called everdell that i'm extremely fond of and on the face of it it is a game about you are delightful woodland animals building a delightful town and nothing sinister is ever going to happen there except that there is a prison that you can build and then you can take animals that are not doing anything in in your town that you've already put down and put them in the prison and the more animals you have in prison the cheaper other things are to build and i was i remember getting to that point thinking am i have i just 
instituted sort of convict slave labor in my delightful animal town. And then you look at that. Well, what animals are you going to put in? Why would you put animals in the prison? And then you work out the only animals who, once you put them down, no longer do anything for you are the kind of the vagabond. So you're rounding up the homeless for your prison and then setting them to work. And your your delightful little animal place is suddenly looking really quite exploitative. And and it's obviously meant to be that way. It's obviously this is this very sly dig by the the game designer. Say, so yeah, actually, there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this lovely looking little town. Once you scratch the surface, and obviously, it is in no way signposted. But once you've done it, you kind of slowly realise, kind of you know where you are getting the money from, as it were, when you're you're running your little village. Where can people find more Agent Tchaikovsky uh, uh, and? Uh, what have you got coming out? What should people be excited about? Okay, so with the way that social media currently is, the most reliable place is adrianchokovsky.com, which has a contact form. Uh, I am on Twitter and Mastodon as at aptshadow, and if I go anywhere else, I'll probably be under the same handle. Um, as to what's coming out, the last of the Architects books is coming out for me it'll be what next week? I think it's end of, end of April anyway, and it's within a week of that in the US. Um, beyond that, it's a relatively clear year. I think there might be another book. There might, in fact, be the sequel to City of Last Chances coming out right at the end of uh, 23. And then, um, I mean, I've got, there's a lot of stuff I have written and submitted that won't be seen for a, a year or so, but there's a, there's a brand new sort of standalone alien ecology science fiction book coming out next year, for example, that I'm very excited about. Well, that makes me very excited about it. Adrian, thank you so much for being on the show. No, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thankfully, this was an audio interview, so I could edit out some of that fawning that I was doing there that is ever so slightly embarrassing. Uh, but uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky is one of my currently most read sci-fi and fantasy authors, and I've been really enjoying this work, and I feel really blessed to have been able to interview him. And especially those bits where he revealed that he wrote in Carcassonne and Above and Below uh into his books i thought they were really really neat uh but also i'd just like to say go read his books i i children of memory it's a third in the series right uh, so you would have to read children of time and children of ruin first but i thought it was exceptionally good and the ideas about uh about what is real and what isn't real in that book i think are really interesting and i just trying to talk without spoilers really here um <laughs> But, you know, very, very illuminating and sort of uh, kind of opening up to new thoughts and new ideas. And City of Last Chances, which is uh, one of his latest books, uh, is a fantasy book, not a sci-fi book, uh, and a beginning of a series. Uh, I thought it was an excellent sort of unintended companion piece to Star Wars Andor oh. um, because they came out around the same time. And dealt with similar subjects, you know, the, the nature of resistance and what is the cost of resistance, uh, you know, what does it mean to be a part of it wittingly, unwittingly, uh, you know, it's a very peculiar book because sometimes people with bad intentions end up doing good things and people with good intentions end up doing terrible things. Um, uh, but I had a had this fantastic way of being written from a perspective of a city, which I've not quite encountered in any other book before that, 
rather than from any particular character, right? Mm. So um, I think that was um, different and unique and uh, very engaging. But at the same time, it makes the place feel incredibly real. You get a real sense of of where you are at and what's happening. So there we go. There's my obligatory plug for Adrian Tchaikovsky's books, uh, which I highly, highly recommend. I believe he is an arachnophile, right? So yes. if you're not keen on spiders, yes, you might you might be frightened of his books. <laughs> I uh, don't know. The, the Children of Time series would definitely be one to avoid in that case. I see. Uh, uh, but uh, City of Last Chances and uh, the Final Architecture series, I think they're perfectly fine. Uh, Shadows of the Apt would also mm-hmm. probably avoid because okay. there's a whole 10 novel series, I think. I think there's 10 <laughs> novels and most of them feature bugs of one sort or another. I love so, a bug and a spider. Yeah, so well, that uh, sounds like right up my street. Elaine, I think you should read Children of Time. Oh, it's, I think it's I an will, excellent yeah. Book. Lastly, we have a game that's not to be confused with a game with almost the same title from 1900. Horseless Carriage comes from publisher Splotterspellen by designers Jeroen Duman and Joris Vasinga and artist Jan Lipinski. Well, what can I say? Wake up, babe. The new Splotterspellen has just dropped. Um, what does that mean? It's a meme. It's a meme? <laughs> yeah. Wake up, babe. X has just dropped. Really? Yeah. What was the original one? I don't know. Some music oh, song right. or okay. whatever Babe. from pay popular artist. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's from the internet. Is so, it from the internet? Yeah. It's is it be- from like Towie or something? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't even know what that is. Oh, the only way is Essex. Oh right, okay. Babe, that's what oh, right, I right, like right. Towie. <laughs> yeah. No, I I don't know. Anyway, I'm, continue. <laughs> I'm only pretending to be young. <laughs> Um, Hello, fellow teenagers. Very much so. We have not had uh, a game from Splotter since Food Chain Magnate. And I think it's probably safe to say that since that game catapulted them into board game publishing stardom, uh, some expectations were had for Horseless Carriage. I had always had a pretty funky relationship with Splotter games where I admired them for what they were, but never managed to find a way to enjoy them. Like an art installation where you go in and you're like, this is very clever and I never need to see it again, you know. I would happily play Horseless Carriage again. Now, from what I'm aware, the critical consensus... The critical consensus on Horseless Carriage is slightly tepid. Like, this is good, but not as good as their previous games. I I haven't played all the Splotter games. I think I've not even played half of them. I I definitely enjoyed Indonesia, apart from the last round of Indonesia. Definitely enjoyed Bass. I definitely enjoyed Food Chain Magnet. But but I haven't tried all of them. You know, I've never tried The Great Zimbabwe, for example, um, or Antiquity. so I'm not an expert, but I really gelled with this one in a way that I haven't gelled with others. So first things first, this is a first impressions. Very strictly, I played this game once. It was taught to me. I haven't read the rule book. And we played it uh, on the online inter- implementation. Uh, How was that? Um, well, I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Um so, uh, first of all, uh, I played it with our good friend John Cox from John Gets Games. Uh, hello, John, if you're listening. 
thank you for persevering with me. I did the horrible thing. I said, um, throughout the course of this game, I was so lost and confused that at one point I said, well, you don't have to worry about what you do because at least you're not going to come last because that's going to be me, right? I know. And then I won somehow, oh, no. right? Okay, but let's let's get into what's <laughs> happening here. Uh, so in Horseless Carriage, you are the dawn of the automotive industry, Ooh. right? Nobody knows what a car is, but they all know they want to build it and sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, so car might not have brakes or whatever, right? And that's a funky theme, and that's good. Uh, it doesn't come into play very much. Rather than what comes into play is this slapdash sense of just build something and sell it quick, right? Oh, Which, just like real cars. <laughs> just, yeah. just like real cars. But it's very emblematic of uh, Splotter as, as a design house. Build something and find a way to sell it, right? And you are operating in this arcane system of capitalist nonsense. That, that also is, sounds like Splotter. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, uh, but but the thing that was added to this that is, I think, s- definitely stronger than in all their other games is the positional sense uh, of, of like a puzzle, right? Uh-huh. Because here you are not doing Tetris pieces, you're doing rectangles and squares, right? Uh, which... Wait, is a square also a rectangle? No. Do I just have to say rectangles no, and that no, covers squares? No, rectangle is the one with the long sides. Well, why can't a square be a rectangle as well? Because it doesn't have long sides. It has equilateral sides. <sighs> it, it feels it like there are many. There can be many different rectangles, but only one square. <laughs> so, like, I'm. No. Anyway, I'm digressing. The point being is that you have a factory <laughs> where you will build cars. And, uh, in the build, shape of squares. In the sh- no of rectangles. Well, sorry. Like so, uh, d- d- rectangles are, for example, your main line, which is a picture of a car that you're going to be building, right? But then attached to that, you have to have a dealership, and then attached to that dealership, you might have to have some marketing. But also attached to that car, which has four different sort of diagonal sides radiating away from it, A, B, C, and D. You might attach different kinds of parts to it, like brakes or an engine, you know, because... That seems necessary. Not all cars apparently <laughs> need an engine. It's very likely that most of your cars will be will have an engine because mm-hmm. of how the game is sort of, you know, set up and stuff like that. That's one of the first things people research. So they're they're very likely to have an engine, but not necessarily, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so you basically, the, through the nature of this game, you will get access to parts, right? Mm-hmm. And the weird thing about it is that you don't have to pay for any of this stuff, right? As long as you have access to it, you can put it in your, like, factory, right? As long as it fits. Now, that last sentence as long as it fits is so important (laughs) because that is pretty much the majority of the game right i've never had a weirder sense of like oh well i just put this thing in and you know put that thing in i put all the things i want right Mm -hmm. and i'll be able to sell it and then you start putting things in and you go ah Right, because it is somehow incredibly overwhelming. Because it starts simple first, right? So again, you have a tile that's your mainland. That's the car you're building, right? You need to attach like this sort of uh, dealership to it so you can sell it. Okay, 
I've attached the dealership, right? And then you need to attach some parts to it. Okay, well, the parts come in two tiles because there's like a little arrow that points to the part and then the part itself. And the only condition is if the part belongs to the B type of tiles, it has to touch the B edge of the car, mm-hmm. right? Now, here's where it gets complicated. What if you have two B parts? Do they both have to touch the edge of the car? No, as long as one of the B tiles touches another B tile, then touches your car. I see. So they're in a chain. Yeah, they're yeah. they're in a chain, right? So that traces towards your car. So that's fine. So you're going, okay, this is still simple, right? <laughs> now, okay, but you also have access to A's and C's. And you have limited space, right, in your factory, right? So suddenly things start to not fit, right? But then you also have uh, research that will let you make more cars or research more parts for future rounds. You also have initiative, which, you know, are you going to sell first or are you going to have more engineering? That's important. You want to raise other people. These are also tiles that go into your factory, so they take up space, right? But then you could have more than one type of car that you're building. Whoa. And then here's the funny part. If the parts, the B parts, right, that you've already, like, attached to your main line of the first car, you somehow attach to the main line of the second car that you just built, which also needs its own dealership, but you already used a small dealership tile, so you now have to bung a bigger dealership tile, right? That you can use both of these, like cars can use both of that one part that you've already placed in your factory, right? But then because each car has four sides, it expands into these like preposterous spider webs that you've generated in your brain that you never have enough space for. And then on top of that, it says, oh, by the way, when you finish building, when you finish building, only when you finish building and placed everything, you get to put more space in your garage. Oh, great, right, okay, okay, I can put more space. But each tile has this bit that says blocked off, so you can't put anything there. But also, this edge always has to be open. And you go, oh, I really need space, or I'm just going to bung it. And you realize that by placing it there, you blocked off this entire other area that you can never expand anymore. It. I have not played this game, and I... I'm lost in this explanation, if I'm honest. I can't explain it in any other way, apart from I'm hoping that the sensation that you're getting from panic, right, is is (laughs) some panic, some amount of overwhelm and an enormous space for possibilities. But then again, as true to any other splotter game, there's the economic part of it, right, which is where you're selling cars. Um, And so it's it's a funky little system where um, basically each player is on this track that either favors engineering or sales. The further you are to the sales side, the sooner you get to sell. The further you are to the engineering side, the more you get access to the parts that other players have researched. Right. Right. So you have to weigh up whether you want to be able to build better cars that can sell for um, like more money or whether you want to sell first. And right, which sometimes you can even if you played your game well and you managed to balance these two things out, you could you could have both. You could have both in your life. You could have already really well built cars, and also this round you're selling first because each round it changes. You see, right? So you could sell some if you built up like this strategy. You know, uh, you could sell like these really amazing cars. But 
the the really funky part is that there's these sort of like grids you place over this map. So the map is like a demand for cars, right? And you'll be like, oh, if it's on the grid here, then it needs to have at least these types of parts and those types of parts and it'll sell for that much. But then based on your marketing, you get to overlay like this sort of, I'm I'm claiming these cars for sale, right? Mm-hmm. And so you literally overlay physically this this plastic little doodad, right? Like this window, basically, of your color. And the more you invested into marketing, which is, again, another tile you have to put in into your whole factory that takes up space, the bigger this grid is, the more cars potentially you're selling. But because you can only sell, like, it's not quite one car at a time, but one car space at a time. Even though you overlay it, like you lay claim to it, someone else can overlay that as well. And then suddenly you're competing. And well, then on top? Yeah, on top. I see. Yeah. Like, so these windows are windows uh-huh. over cars. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that what I'm describing sounds preposterous and arcane. But if you ever played any Splotter game, you will know that all of their games are like that. They are elaborate. They are somewhat satirical. They are quite peculiar and unusual. And Horseless Carriage is no exception in that regard. It is it is a bizarre system that really overwhelms you, but is nevertheless pleasing and interesting to manipulate, right? So, for example, the way I won my game, right, is there's three types of cars. There's regular cars, which everyone probably builds at the start of you don't have to build a regular car but it's easiest if you start with a regular car there's trucks that always sell for one more uh, and then there's sports cars oh. which sell for two more right money whenever they sell so uh but again they take up more space in your factory but you don't have to build them sequentially you don't have to build the basic cars first and then the trucks and then the sports cars no you don't but like so there's no demand for sports cars at the beginning of the oh, game I see. Or there might not be. There's probably not be, right? Uh, and and so you can build a sports car, but then you won't be selling anything on the first round, And right? that will take space up in your garage. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. And at the start of the game, you only likely have enough space for one, one mainline car, car one right. type of car. So probably, again, the game is generous in that way, where it says you can do anything, right? Do anything you want. And in that, again, splotter style you can really make some stupid decisions. (laughs) But I have to say that in this game, uh, these decisions are telegraphed a lot more early. It's like, you can try and do this if you want to, but why would you, you know? Um, Whereas in Food Chain Magnet, I remember... That was not obvious. No, that was not immediately... It was obvious when we took the steps for the first couple of turns and went, oh, you lost, (laughs) right? Like, uh, but, but here it's like, no, just... Maybe don't do that, you know, unless you really know what you're doing, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's less that. Um, but but otherwise, it's incredibly generous in letting you do almost anything you mm-hmm. like, as long as you can somehow finagle it, right? So the way I won is by no one else was making sports cars. I, at one point, said, I'm going to try and make sports cars. After I made sports cars, I realized that I made a horrible mistake. And I couldn't actually sell my sports cars because whilst sports cars were, you know, functioning in my factory, there wasn't demand 
for the type of crappy sports car that I made <laughs> because it just wasn't good enough. I couldn't make it like well enough, right? So I was stuck with a sports car that I couldn't sell. And I thought, well, that's it. I've lost, right? But then through some, uh, maybe because I made this mistake, no one else decided to follow me up on this adventure of sports cards. I could really focus and create this demand because at the end of every round, you play a demand card Mm -hmm. and it sort of dictates like what cards, what cars appear on this grid and like from how much you think they'll sell and where they'll sort of appear, right? So I had a couple of good cards that created demand for sports cards and because the demand was there, even though I couldn't build it initially. The car, the demand was building up more and more and more, right? And eventually, I was able to come in and hoover all of that up, and no one was competing with me. So I got the big bucks, mm-hmm. you know. But were they not getting int- incremental bucks throughout whilst you were doing they, that? They absolutely were. I, I, did, I still Is didn't Is that think- why you thought... Yeah, I thought, listen, I won, but I, I've described this like this, right? I won by i stormed the castle successfully by flailing in the moat right like i had no idea what i was doing but some piece of mud i chucked into someone's eye made someone fall over the sword uh, and that person you know let loose the winch and then the (laughs) the the you know the bridge drew open and somehow we won we stormed the castle that that's how that happened right like I, <laughs> like a Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Like, I, I made some choices, and uh-huh. it turned out to be great, right? But my own personal agency in that was, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's a fantastically engaging playground. Okay, why did I like this more than other Splotter games? It's uh, a good question, Efka. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be for everyone. First of all, I do like a good spatial puzzle, mm-hmm. right? And so I really enjoyed that aspect. Is it more of a spatial puzzle than, than say, Food Chain Magnet? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's some spatial puzzling in Food Chain Magnet because you're, you're sort of building on that shared mm-hmm. board. But a lot of Food Chain Magnet happens in what card pyramid you build, see, yeah. right? Whereas here it's the opposite. The positional puzzle is what you build, right? And then there's some interactivity on the demand board, right? Because the the puzzle is your own unique puzzle. Yes, exactly, right? And I think that's why maybe people aren't as hot on this uh, as other splotter games, because because there's a lot of like looking down on your own factory and just going ham on this for 15 minutes and trying to brain it together right on your own and and i think that can be maybe off-putting to some people i i find it a particularly great way to play this because it's like everyone goes into their tank you know spends a good amount of time there uh aches and groans and goes i can't do this and then 15 minutes later everyone emerges and goes right well i've got something you know and it might work a little bit um and then we do the selling and we see the results right uh so i get to engage in this you know economic splotter game but I get to, you know, puzzle this out on my own time. It's like it's like food chain magnet meets a feast for Odin, if you I want. See. Oh well, yeah. I mean, a you, you like that game a lot, feast for Odin. I mean, yeah, so because it's that individual puzzling out of pieces. Yes, 
Yeah. So that that's no surprise to me that you enjoyed that part of the game. I really did. Uh, I'm not sure how much you would because uh, you're not a big enjoyer of... Of Feast for Odin. Yeah, or, mm-hmm. you know, placement puzzles. No. Yeah. I don't have much spatial awareness. No, I, and it definitely punishes you for not planning very well. Thankfully, it's not it's not Tetrisy, so it's all mm-hmm. like squares and rectangles. Um, so this brings me to the online in- implementation. We played on the official online implementation, which works in a similar way as Board Game Arena, where it's a website rather than like a 3D simulator of a board game, right? Um, I've discovered something about myself that I've never realized. So, and I've not really spoken about this uh, before, uh, but I have, I guess what you would call partial aphantasia, right? Uh, which something that, that part I knew, right? So mm-hmm. if you're not familiar, aphantasia is when you, when you can't visualize things in your imagination, basically to, to summarize. So if someone says, you know, Pete Doherty, I can't, I can't put a picture of Pete Doherty in my head. I don't know why. Yeah. I think- <laughs> gonna say that's a yeah a strange one for you to imagine i was I don't thinking know. like apple or pig or <laughs> no but i tried to pick something more elaborate I than see. you know because I, I can sort of i can summon a clip art of, of 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 an apple in my head if i need to right I see. uh but it's like the most generic clip art right that's why like aphantasia again there's there's like levels of it right some people just can't visualize anything i don't have that uh, but I s- definitely struggle a lot when I read books. I don't have this vivid, you know, picture in my head of the characters or the locations or whatever. It's more just words and meaning, right? So, uh, what about this game made you realize that well, it's that not was a, a part of it? It was not a game. It, it was the online implementation I because see. I can't see the entirety of the game in one go, and when I can't see all the available tiles and what they look like. Right, because like they're in different tabs, not tab, but like they are effectively in different tabs. You don't see the whole game, mm-hmm. right? You have to like click on the menu, right, and then it takes you there. I, I can't visualize how these tiles look like, right? And and I found it incredibly hard to play a placement puzzle uh, without having the full visual information right there in front of me. Mm. Um, so. I was severely overwhelmed by that. Mm. And I, I don't know if anyone else, else who's listening has aphantasia and they've tried online implementations like like on BGA and whether they've struggled um, with with something similar. If if you have, please write into Elena, no pun included, dot com. I'd love to hear about that genuinely. Um, but yeah, that was just, there's nothing really to do with the game, but it was just an interesting aside that I've noticed that I've never never really realized about myself and how like something like I have, like aphantasia affects me in how a way. How that affects you play the game. Yeah, game. yeah, yeah. I had to constantly like switch between tabs and go, right, I look here and then I look back. Then I look here, then I look back. Then I look here, then I look back. And that was, that was I think, partly maybe why it was so overwhelming for me. Now, in terms of, uh, we have a physical copy of Horses Carriage as well. In terms of the production, I do want to note that one of the problems is that I mentioned that the sides has A, B, C, and D, or each car has like four different sides. Now, they're denoted by white, off-white, slightly gray, more gray. Oh, (laughs) no! 
Some of them are imperceptible. And despite having aphantasia, I have really excellent, you know, color perception. perception. Um, And I normally do not struggle with anything, you know. So I know there's people with color vision difference, obviously. But but even people without color vision difference will sometimes say, like, oh, these two tiles are so close, I can barely tell them apart. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're completely two different colors, Yellows and oranges you're very good at. And, Um, And shades of green you're very good at. Yeah. But these tiles were so close mm. that they were really hard to separate. So uh, I'll note that about the production. I know that there's been an error in the initial printings and oh. they're sort of they're sending out stickers to fix that. Um, I, I mean, they seem to be on top of that. So that's not a big deal. Uh, I don't know if you can buy Holster's Carriage right now because considering that Splotter is still an indie publisher mm. and they still sort of like, you know, print locally i think or something like that you know it's it's uh, it's not going to be something that's immediately available but if you're interested in the news plotter you can probably find it somewhere at least for pre-order justin says i just had my first play of horseless carriage and i would love to hear your thoughts on the way splotter and other games are able to provide social critique using their theme especially considering the carnegie theme games theme seems to avoid social critique when it had a clear chance to do so. So if you're not familiar, I have made a video called Food Chain Magnet is Monopoly. Uh, That's somewhat of a joke title, uh, being that I compare it to Monopoly in terms of how they're both critiques of capitalism in ways that you might not suspect. Because with Monopoly, the story, I think, has been told many a times Lizzie Maggie has designed Monopoly as a critique of capitalism, then Hasbro stole it, and, you know, capitalism happened. Um, I think Food Chain Magnet is less obvious. Um, But when I published that video, a lot of people were, what are you talking about? This is not a critique of capitalism. Um, But my vindication came when one of the designers saw the video and said, oh, this is incredibly, you know, interesting or something like that. They were very pleasant about it, right? Mm. And I thought, yes, I did. I was right, you know. Uh, And yeah, I I think they are. I think anytime with board games, you're a little bit uncertain how much this is like just a sincere emulation and how much of it is comedy with splotter you're a little bit more certain because (laughs) quite a lot of it is absurd and comedic right but but you know being absurd and comedic you can still be absurd and comedic about something that you're generally in favor of right so i don't think they're necessarily overt criticisms because they they balance that fine line of they can be seen as criticisms, but they can be seen as just, you know, an emulation and people can enjoy it regardless, which is, I think, what happened with Food Chain Magnet, because a lot of people just play it as, you know, play it straight without mm. without without seeing the satire, without seeing the comedy, you know, and, and some people do see the the sort of pointed bits. Um, I think that's that's the key to the success is that you have to lean both ways a little bit, you know, as unpleasant as that sounds, because that way you're reaching like a broader amount of people. Do you mean as a designer? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a publisher. Um, yeah, I think, I think as a designer, I think there has to be some sincerity in the design. And that's not to say that, like, the design has to excuse anything or, you know, do any of that. I mean, more like, if your satire is is obviously just satire, right? Then all it ever is, is satire. Mm. Whereas if the satire is sincere, right, then it feels faithful to the idea. Yeah, do you mean more like um, when you have a theme like Carnegie, you, it's very hard to satirize because it still feels like punching down. Whereas if you have something like capitalism or consumerism, it's it's definitely the kind of punching up. You're making fun of, you know, the establishment. I, I mean, that's an excellent point. That's not what I meant, but oh. that, that is a great point. And some, no, I mean, okay, so, so for example, when Splotter did Greed Inc., mm-hmm. right, I think with a title like that, it's very obvious what you're doing, right? And it sits very comfortably as satire, right? And you look at that and you go... Like, okay, but I have no interest in playing that because I all I see is satire, right? Mm. I know that greed is bad, right? I see. I don't need a lesson in that. Whereas when something is faithful, like, and, you know, Food Chain Magnet is very much faithful to the sort of monopolistic ideas that it's trying to emulate, right? It's saying, hey, monopolies, right? And then you play it and it's like, oh, wait, monopolies, right? <laughs> that, I mean, that sort of difference, right? Between something like Great Ink, it's just satire, right? Whereas like, oh, monopoly, oh, monopolies, right? You catch more, more people yeah. that way, right? Because you present a broad, faithful idea and then you show them how that works and they go, oh, and then you reel them in from yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You, you get them on your side of the idea. Yes, with, exactly. With the explanation, like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, that's a good point. Send your comments and questions to Elaine at nopunincluded.com. And if you want extra bonus pun, you can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash nopunincluded. Every time we publish an episode on this podcast, we also publish. A bonus episode exclusive just to no pun included patrons. If you become a patron subscriber by patreon.com slash no pun included, you will get access to a separate RSS feed that has both these main episodes and also the bonus episodes. In this week's bonus episode, we're going to have a review of Skytear Horde. Uh, spoilers, it's rubbish. <laughs> um, uh, we're also going to be Uh, introducing a new little section called In and Out, where we discuss the games that have arrived and discuss the games that are leaving. Uh, Which Skytear Horde might feature on. (laughs) Multiple (laughs) times. Somewhere on there. Um, And finally, Elaine concocted a new torture device to torture me with. So uh, look forward to that. It's not my fault. It's what the people asked for, Efka. Sorry. I will acquiesce to the people. Finally, we have one more question, which is a quite, a, I think it's a lighthearted question, I mm-hmm. think. Tom asks, what's your favourite meeple? Cyan. Cyan is what? Cyan. That's a colour. Yes. Oh, so any, any meeple that is cyan is your favourite? I like cyan. I like meeples. Put them all together. What do you get? Cyan meeples. Correct. I see. I, I said it was a light question. I wasn't sure. I thought it might 
spark something in you that was deeper and darker than than that. No, cyan's a pretty light color. It is a pretty light color. Do you prefer cyan to um, like a dark, darker blue, like a like we a navy blue? We don't have to elaborate or... on this. No, okay, it's then. it's fine if the answer is cyan meeple. <laughs> My favorite is wool meeple. <laughs> when a game has a meeple for wool. For wool? Oh, right. I thought like a meeple made out of wool. Oh, yeah, all that, actually. I love wool. Does that still count as a meeple if it's just a, if it's a meeple, resource? Yeah, if it's meeple-shaped, I think that's, yeah, okay. that's good. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, it's probably not. It's probably wool-shaped. That's not a meeple, no. Okay, no. never mind then. Forget that. Um, that's all the cardboard for now. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for all your questions and your comments. In the next podcast, we'll be talking about distilled world breakers and res arcana. So if you have any words of wisdom or any questions about those, please do let us know. Elaine at nopunincluded.com. In the meantime, Efka, if they want more pun-free fun, where can they find it? They can find us on YouTube where they can see all our video reviews of board games that's youtube.com slash no pun included uh we've recently published a video on space solo games and sometime later down the line we'll have a review of Aeon trespass odyssey which you've heard words about already in the previous episodes lastly what is the game of this episode it's a tough choice all of them are good it's been an exceptionally good game episode is it rolling high I might go with Rolling Heights. I, it's it's a tough call between Horseless Carriage, but there's just something about Rolling Meeples that is... I can't deny it. And with that, why don't you say goodbye, Elaine? Goodbye, Elaine. Goodbye, Elaine. <laughs> we did it the wrong way around. I know, that's why it's funny. Yeah. <laughs>